welcome. I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy it, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the Ricky McCormick ciphers. Now, I must give out a warning, there is some coarse language and mature content in this week's case, so fair warning if any of that triggers you in any way or offends you. I do not mean to offend anybody, so just giving you a heads up. So Ricky McCormick always stood out as different from his peers. His mother, Frankie Sparks, describes him, and excuse me for using this word, but his mother was quoted as saying this, retarded. His cousin, Charles McCormick, who shared a brotherly relationship with Ricky for most of his life, says Ricky would often talk like he was in another world and suspects Ricky might have suffered from schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. It's unclear whether Ricky McCormick ever received formal treatment for mental illness, but family members recall Ricky's penchant for concocting talk tales and his displays of unusual behavior such as when he was a boy he spent much time at recess just standing off by himself that his mother would receive calls from school administrators asking if anything was wrong now ricky worked a number of jobs uh, floor mopper dishwasher bus boy service station attendant and disability checks he collected due to his chronic health problems ricky however landed in very hot water with police because in november of 1992 st louis police arrested the 34 year old mccormick for having fathered two children with a girl younger than 14 years old. In fact, McCormick had been sleeping with the girl since she was 11, according to court files, which protected the girl's identity. McCormick's mother and aunt knew the girl simply by her nickname, Pretty Baby. I mean, what I find really strange is that 34-year-old McCormick was dating and had sex with a girl and had two children before she was even 14. Now, how is it that that her mother and aunt and, and other family members had no idea about this? I don't understand how they had no idea, but yet they knew her by the nickname of Pretty Baby. To me, there's a disconnect somewhere because how could he possibly be going out with a girl that young and having sex with a girl that young which is absolutely disgusting and the parents don't know anything about it I mean unless of course he hid it from them and lied about her age or something I mean it's the only way that I can really see them getting around it but I mean if I was McCormick's parent I'd be asking some serious questions because that's just a little bit odd to me that while awaiting trial on the first degree sexual abuse charge McCormick's public defender noted she had reasonable cause to believe McCormick was suffering from some mental disease disease or defect and requested that the judge order a mental health exam. Dr. Michael Armour, a local psychologist, evaluated McCormick at the former St. Louis State Hospital. Following Armour's report and a hearing, however, the court certified McCormick was fit for trial. Six weeks later, on September 1st of 1993, McCormick pleaded guilty to the crime. He spent 13 months behind bars in the Farmington Correctional Centre before being sent home a year early on conditional release. He was also said to have fathered a further two children which there's no record as to what happened to any of them or where they went or anything like that. And I have no information on the the other two children, but it just seems really weird that he was able to do all of this under the counter and nobody seemed to know anything about it. It's a little bit strange. Ricky reportedly worked as a gas station attendant, but the gas station that he worked at had a very interesting and shady history, along with a very dodgy owner who was also his boss at the time, a guy by the name of Baha Hamdala, who from all accounts was a very dangerous individual, not one you'd want to mess around with. The gas station in question was the Amoco gas station of downtown St. Louis. It turned out that Fawaz M. Hamdan, 
the original owner of the business, killed his neighbor with a butcher knife during a front yard argument in May of 1994. He later died in Missouri's Potosi Correctional Center while serving a life sentence for that second-degree murder. Juma Hamdallah, a Palestinian immigrant who in 2002 used the name of David Radigan, took over as president of the business. Juma employed his brother Baha Bob Hamdallah. Despite their familial ties, the two had a very rocky relationship, it's said. It would also seem that Baha has a very interesting, very violent, and very checkered history himself. It would also appear that Baha was also the suspect in another unsolved murder. So in August of 1999, less than two months after McCormick's death, police from Maryland Heights investigated an incident in which Juma allegedly shot Baha. Baha Hamdallah survived and filed no charges, but according to police records, Detectives looking into the shooting gathered information allegedly linking Baha to black gang members in St. Louis City and narcotics use and noted that Baha is reported to be violent and in possession of several weapons, which include handguns and knives. Among the Hamdallah brothers, another Jamil Hamdallah is a registered sex offender. Baha appears to be the most volatile. Police reports and witness statements spanning several years illustrate repeated episodes of violence that seem to occupy him or accompany him wherever he went. For example, shortly after moving to St. Louis in 1997 from Cleveland, Ohio. Then 22-year-old Baha Hamdallah was cruising the streets of St. Louis in a blue Mazda protege when a police detective saw him pull up alongside a man named Terence Clark, lean out of his car window and fire a shot at him with a 38 caliber revolver. According to the police report of the incident and witness statements, Clark escaped unharmed and Baha was arrested but never prosecuted. Which amazes me because if you have a police detective witness Terence Clark being shot out of the window by Baha from a moving car i mean how the hell is it that baha was arrested but was never prosecuted you do not get a better witness than a police detective which amazes the hell out of me that baha was never prosecuted because if a police detective goes look i witnessed you doing this crime then i just find it really weird that you've got a policeman that witnessed this crime and yet baha was never prosecuted maybe there was no evidence and maybe the police detective had a sort of slippery slope he would say one thing baha would easy counter it and say yeah we'll prove it what evidence have you got i think basically it came down to the fact that it was a he said she said kind of thing and you can't convict someone on hearsay but if you've got witnesses and witness statements it's kind of a bit difficult to see why Baha wouldn't have at least been investigated for it then again I don't know the full scope of the story Nine months later, on the evening of the 4th of March 1998, Baha Hamdallah was visiting one of his older brothers, Bajit Hamdallah, at his job at the Family Market, a small corner grocery store in the Tower Grove East neighborhood. They got into an argument, apparently, and Baha allegedly grabbed a gun and opened fire on Bajat from across the street. A bullet tore into the left side of Bajat's abdomen and knocked him to the ground. Baha jumped into his car and sped off. The eyewitness reports, including that of the manager who knew Baha from frequent visits to the store, were consistent in the police report, but a bloodied Bajat, either out of fear or a remaining shred of fraternal loyalty to his brother, told the police he had never seen his assailant before and described him as a goateed Hispanic man rather than his 5 foot 10 225 pound Middle Eastern brother. Six days later Baha Hamdallah turned himself in and was arrested on a felony charge of first degree assault but Bajit told police he did not wish to prosecute. State court files show no record of the case which is interesting again because it seems as if Baha was definitely the kind of guy that was intimidating and not someone that you wanted to either have a snitch jacket around or somebody who you wanted to piss off. He really seems like the kind of guy from what I've read about him that he wasn't someone that you wanted to get on the wrong side of because he would come after you and he would use violence. He seems like the kind of guy, especially the way it was described to me, he seems like the kind of guy that would use violence first and ask questions later. So if you, excuse my French, fucked around with him, 
then you definitely find out what he would do. So he definitely seemed like the kind of guy you wanted to be on the right side of. You didn't want to muck around with this guy. He definitely wasn't someone you wanted to piss off. Later the same month, while working at the family's Amco station, Baha Hamdala was arrested again, this time on a felony charge of second-degree assault for allegedly beating a man named Elro Carr with a rusty hammer. Baha allegedly threatened to kill Carr, described by family and acquaintances as a sometimes homeless drug addict if he didn't get off the property. Baha told police, and I quote, I just figured I'd take care of this myself, end quote. Again, on August 7th of 1998, two weeks before Carr's case against Baha Hamdallah was slated to go to court, Carr was gunned down just blocks from the Amco station on a residential street in the neighboring housing project. The pending assault charge against Baha died that night with Carr. Now, interestingly enough, Carr's murder remains unsolved and police made no arrests. However, confidential informants told police Carr was killed at the behest of Baha Hamdallah, according to St. Louis police reports obtained through a public records request. On June 15th, of 1999, about two weeks before his death, Ricky McCormick walked up to the counter at the Greyhound bus terminal downtown and purchased a one-way ticket to Orlando. It would turn out to be the last of at least two brief trips to Florida he made that year. It's not known or clear whom McCormick met during his stay in room 280 at the Econo Lodge in Orlando, but phone records show he or his girlfriend Sandra Jones made a flurry of calls to several people in Central Florida a couple of weeks ahead of his arrival. Jones and McCormick exchanged a similar barrage of short phone calls during the last two days McCormick spent in Orlando, and he made one call at least to the St. Louis gas station where he worked. Jones would later tell police that she suspected McCormick went to Florida to pick up marijuana. Now, according to a sheriff's department an investigative report. Jones' explanation went something like this. McCormick would accept offers to pick up and deliver packages for money. He made trips to Florida before and on several occasions brought up marijuana into the apartment he shared with Jones in the Clinton Peabody housing project south of downtown. The drugs would usually be sealed in Ziploc bags, rolled together into bundles the size of baseballs. McCormick also told Jones he was holding the stashes of weed for Baha Hamdallah, and the police report states this. McCormick never liked to talk about his excursions to Orlando, but he seemed different when he got back that last time and Jones told police that he seemed scared. Indeed, McCormick's already unsettled lifestyle seemed to become more erratic after he came back, as if he sensed trouble around the corner but didn't know where to turn. Obviously, dealing in drugs you would have a sort of almost paranoid I mean, you talk to people that were involved in the drug trade they always have this paranoid mindset of, oh my god is somebody around that corner or going to be waiting at home for me with a gun to shoot me. McCormick used much of his time during his last days to seek out medical care or perhaps more accurately a safe place to stay. So around 3 o'clock on the afternoon of June 22nd, 1999, McCormick walked alone into Barnes Jewish Hospital emergency room complaining of chest pains and a shortness of breath. Now, this was nothing new, but McCormick had a history of ER visits and had suffered from asthma and chest pains since childhood. He didn't abuse drugs or alcohol, a statement friends and family back up. It didn't help, however, that he smoked at least a pack of cigarettes a day since he was about 10 years old and drank coffee by the gallon. By his own estimate, he told his doctors he down more than 20 caffeinated beverages a day. Now, that to me is probably the most outlandish and insane amount of caffeine to drink a day. 20 caffeinated beverages a day. Now, it's just, it, it was described as caffeinated, so I don't know whether he was drinking 20 cups of coffee or whether he was having coffee, Coca-Cola, energy drinks that, with caffeine in it, but 20 caffeinated beverages a day. Hell, if I was to do that, I would be dead within a week. I don't know how we did it. I mean, that's absolutely insane. You would have heart palpitations. I remember for work, when I was working and I used to, was first drinking coffee, I, would ha- I had about three or four coffees in one day. By the end of the day, I was literally hyperventilating 
bleeding and it literally felt as if my heart was going to come out of my chest i couldn't sit down i i literally had to be doing something it was like being on meth almost it was it was insane i literally had to be doing something so caffeine overdose is not as damn serious it's not something to joke about and people go oh you can't get caffeine overdose oh yes you can and with the way mccormick was shoveling down these beverages at 20 a day I mean, that's an absurd amount of caffeine to be drinking. I couldn't do it. I had four cups of coffee and I thought that I was going to die. So, I mean, I'll tell you what, 20 caffeinated beverages a day and we have no idea how long he was doing this for. I mean, that's an absurd amount of caffeine to be having. Now, the thing is, doctors ruled out a heart attack, but admitted McCormick for observation and kept him there for two days. Ricky then left the hospital on June 24th with orders to return for the follow-up visit in the coming weeks, which he never kept. Because on June 30th of 1999, a woman was driving through a rural area near West Alton, Missouri, and noticed something unusual just off the side of the quiet road near Route 367. It was a decomposing body of Ricky McCormick, who was lying face down in a cornfield. He was wearing filthy Lee blue jeans and a stained white t-shirt. Along with Ricky's body were two hand-scribbled notes that were found in his pocket. The notes weren't written in a language that police understood and appeared to have been written in 30 lines of coded text. The coded notes added another layer of mystery to Ricky's death. Now, when Ricky was found, he was already at a severe level of decomposition. However, his fingerprints were still intact, which allowed police to justify measly due to his previous interactions with the police over the rape charges, and his information was already on file. Ricky was 20 miles from his home, and the police couldn't figure out why he was there or how he'd gotten there. Ricky didn't know anyone who lived in the sparse area. He didn't have a car of his own, nor was there any public transportation in the area. What was even more interesting is the area where he was dumped. The stretch of road he was found on was known as a dumping road for criminals. For example, in 1995, authorities discovered the bullet-ridden body of an alleged prostitute in an abandoned house along the same stretch of US Route 67. Two years after McCormick's death, state road crews mowing grass some 300 yards away from where he lay found the nude bodies of two more women. When police looked into Ricky's last known whereabouts, they thought it was odd his body was so badly decomposed as he couldn't have died more than three days prior, but appeared to have died much earlier. The weather had been moderate and couldn't have advanced or account for the advanced decomposition. Hence, the police summarized he may have been killed elsewhere and then kept in a hot outbuilding or vehicle trunk before dumping his body. However, what was interesting was the medical examiner was unable to determine the cause of death and initially ruled out homicide. While the police admitted they found no indication that anyone had a motive to kill him, nor any weapons or witnesses to support that he may have been murdered. They believed Ricky had been a victim of homicide. I mean, I would think that that would be a non-starter because he only had to look through his history and talk to his girlfriend and look into the station attendants that he was working with, Baha Hamdullah and all that, and they would have been like, okay, we've got a link here. We've got to look into Baha Hamdullah. We've got to look into his girlfriend. To me, there's no way that I could rule it out as a su- as anything other than a homicide. It wasn't a suicide. wasn't anything like that. If you looked into what Ricky was doing leading up to his death, it sure as shit says to me that he was involved in some very dodgy dealings and shady business to do with drugs with some very dangerous people and i think those dangerous people are what killed him however by march of 29th of 2011 investigators hadn't gone any closer to solving ricky's death than the day they had started all the way back in the 1990s the fbi's cryptanalysis and racketeering records unit crru for short and the american cryptogram association attempted to decipher the notes found in ricky's pocket but had no luck after years of trying they decided their best option would be to go to the public and ask for 
for their help decoding the notes. Now, why on earth they decided it would be a good idea to sit on something this important for 12 years is beyond me. When a crime happens and you have information like this, one could argue that you don't want the offender to know what the police have as evidence. I get that. But in this case, releasing this to the public would have possibly helped crack this code. Problem is, with leaving it for so long, people die, memories tend to fade over a 12-year period. So if they knew something 12 years ago and could have helped us crack this thing and then got asked about it now, they likely wouldn't recall it correctly. And CRRU Chief Don Olsen believes breaking the code could help the police determine where Ricky was before his death. Olsen feels as though there may be notes Ricky took for himself. He hopes the notes can at least give the police a clue as to what happened to Ricky and why, and authorities strongly believe the notes must mean something, but they've yet to figure out what it means. Now, Dan has tried everything he could to break the code over the years. He brought it to other analysts to look at and brainstorm ideas and consulted experts for clues. He compared the letters and numbers in the notes to every street address in St. Louis and vetted them against maps from across the country. But no hits rose to a level beyond coincidence. So then in September of 2009, Dan decided to release this to the public forum and presented the McCormick puzzle to a room of about 25 amateur code breakers gathered in Niagara Falls, Ontario for the annual convention of the American Cryptogram Association. The challenge generated interest, but association members have been unable to make any breakthroughs. The deluge that followed this renewed public interest prompted the FBI to establish a special webpage just to handle more than 7,000 public comments and theories that have poured in so far. Now, respondents have suggested the encrypted notes could mask information about everything from vehicle identification numbers, gambling books and drug dealing transactions, to addresses and directions, mental health episodes or medications. So even though people put some level of effort into cracking these codes, there has been some level of criticism leveled at the way this investigation was conducted into the coded notes found in Ricky's pocket. And I tend to agree with that because back in St. Louis, McCormick's family members say they never heard from police about the Humdullers, Knox, or any other details of the investigation into Ricky's death. Now, Knox I'll get into very shortly, and the Humdullers I'll also come back to and circle back to very shortly. So the McCormick family, they, they never heard about the encrypted notes found in his pockets until the local evening news broadcast a report on the codes, which I think is really deplorable because you've got a family here whose son or son-in-law or whatever turn up dead. You have this encrypted notes in his pocket. Why would you not go to the family? I mean, the first instinct, if I was a detective on this case, the first thing I'd do is go, okay, we've got this note. First instance would be to go, right, we go to the family. Maybe the family might know what this is all about. You know, Ricky might have code books that he wrote down, you know, or had at home somewhere. And maybe they know what this code is all about. I mean, the family members might know that, oh, Ricky's a code breaker. He worked with so-and-so. Like there are so many leads that could have been generated if they'd gone to the family straight away. And the family might've said, oh yeah, we know that he worked with this other guy and they created codes together as a kid. He might be able to know what to do. And then you've got a line of inquiry. The fact that police never went to Ricky's family and didn't tell them about any of the suspects and the, the death of their son or anything about the case. I mean, to me, that's really lousy and very deplorable because Frankie Sparks even said, and I quote, they told us the only thing in his pockets was the emergency room ticket. Now, 12 years later, they come back with this chicken scratch shit, end quote. And contradicting the FBI statements to the media, family members say they never knew of Ricky to write in code. They say they only told investigators he sometimes jotted down nonsense he called writing, and they seriously questioned McCormick's ability to, and capacity to craft the notes found in his pockets. As his mother said, the only thing he could write was his name. He didn't write no code, end quote. Charles McCormick's 
recalls that Ricky couldn't even spell anything, just scribble. Now we come to the possible suspects in the case. So St. Louis police were investigating a man named Gregory Lamar Knox, who I mentioned earlier, a major drug dealer who operated in and around the housing complex where McCormick had lived as a suspect in several homicides, including at least two murder-for-hire schemes. Now, according to police records, a confidential informant also told police that Knox was responsible for the murder of a black man who worked at the gas station on Chiaotu Avenue and whose body was dumped near West Alton, St. Louis. Police also linked the Humdullers with alleged criminal activity and a possible association with Gregory Knox. No arrests ever materialized. Yarbrough says that despite ongoing suspicions, detectives never could substantiate claims from informants suggesting a connection between the Humdullers or Knox or prove either was responsible for McCormick's death. Still, both Knox and Humdullah have found their way to prison at least for a short period of time. Knox was arrested on July 25th, 2000 and pleaded guilty in January 2001 to charges of possession with intent to distribute crack cocaine and carry a firearm during and in relation to a drug trafficking crime. A March 2001 HUD report to Congress noted Knox was a suspect in at least four homicides that occurred in 1988 and 1999 in LaSalle Park Homes and Clinton Peabody Housing Developments in St. Louis. He was also the number one supplier of narcotics to LaSalle Park Homes. Knox is currently serving his sentence at the Federal Medical Center in Lexington, Kentucky, and is scheduled to be released in November 2013. On the 13th of October 2000, Baha Hamdala was managing another store, Charlie's Food Market in Madison, Illinois, when he got into an argument with a customer named Robert Steptoe. Different versions of the events were later presented in court, but ultimately a jury convicted Hamdala of first-degree murder after he shot Steptoe in the face with a 9mm Glock pistol outside the store. In September of 2002, a Madison County judge sentenced Hamdala to 38 years in prison for killing Steptoe. Nearly four years later, however, in May of 2006, an Illinois appellate court ruled Hamdala's lawyer erred by not calling a gunshot residue expert to testify in person in the shooting case. The appellate court granted a retrial. In the second go-round, the jury brought Hamdala's claims of self-defense and his version of events in which the gun went off while he and Steptoe were struggling for control of the pistol. Because of this, on May 15th of 2008, Hamdala walked out of court a free man, which brings us to present day. So the police still have come no closer to finding out what happened to Ricky McCormick or what his notes mean. Despite releasing his notes to the public in hopes someone would crack the code, they've yet to receive a lead that will hopefully allow them to solve the case. And what of the main suspects? Well, brother Bajet Hamdala says Juman now lives in the Philippines and that Baha has married and relocated back to the Cleveland area in his attempt to start over following his Illinois murder trial. Gregory Knox, on the other hand, responding by email from prison to questions about McCormick allegations that he was involved in, in McCormick's murder, wrote, and I quote, at this time and at this moment, this is all new information to me and I've no information that could help your case, end quote. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions that still remain unanswered. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time. Next on Unanswered Questions. So she wrote a note in which she predicted her own death and down to how it was going to happen, and then it happens.